Good morning to each of you. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4 today. I'm speaking to you on why I believe the Gospel. We've looked at why I believe the Bible, why I believe in creation, and why I believe the Gospel. Let us look at the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 6. We couldn't put all of this up, so I, the key verse will be verse 10, but I'll begin reading in verse 6 if you have your Bibles there. John 4, 6. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Most of the translations say beside the well. It's uh, not a big deal. King James says he was sitting on the well, I think. The only big deal is that when I I went to Holy Land many years ago, and they said for such and such amount of money, you can go to Jacob's well and sit where Jesus sat. Well, in the King James, it says he sat on the well, but every other translation says he sat by the well, beside the well. So I remember going and sitting on the well, thinking I'm sitting where the Son of God sat. And then just realized he probably didn't sit exactly on the well, but by it somewhere. So I was thinking about writing and getting my money back, but... Probably too late now. Verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, the first thing we probably should look at is, is what's the problem with the Samaritans? Um, if you'll give me that first map up here, the... Um, the ten tribes, there were twelve tribes in Israel, and Judah and Benjamin stayed in the south, and the ten tribes went to the north and actually had their own places of worship and own kings, and, and they, they split during the time of Solomon. In 700 B.C., the king of Assyria, and this is in 2 Kings chapter 17, It says, he came down and he besieged Samaria and the ten northern tribes. And it took him two or three years, but he finally conquered the entire ten tribes in the north. He took them and deported them to another, to other lands. And that's, today we call them the ten lost tribes of Israel. Well... It says in 2 Kings 17, 24, 
the king of Assyria then brought men from Babylon and Kuthah and Ava and Hamath and placed them in the cities of Samaria in the place of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and the cities thereof. So in the So when the ten tribes were carried off by the Assyrians, the Assyrians then took people from other locations and lands, brought them into Israel, and put them in Samaria. This was the way they would control the populations they had conquered. They just changed properties with them. And therefore the Jews viewed somewhat accurately all the Samaritans as foreigners occupying their land. And they viewed them also accurately as idolaters, worshipers of another God, not the God of Israel. And so give me the next map. Uh, So whenever they went to up to the far north in Galilee, they would go around Samaria. See the red line is is usually the places where they would go to avoid going through Samaria. They didn't even want the dust of the Samaritans on their sandals. If they happened to get it, they would dust off their feet or shoes. So Jesus, though, does not go around Samaria. He's a kind of a troublemaker. (laughs) And he goes right straight through Samaria and sits at one of their cities, Sychar, and sits on the well or by the well and brings up, here's this woman at noon coming to get water, and he initiates a conversation with a Samaritan woman. All of that is is taboo in Israel. Now, this is why in verse 9, it says in that little parentheses at the end, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But this one did. Further, it is a woman coming at noonday. Now, one of the commentaries I read said the women would normally come in the mornings in groups and they would, it would be a gossip session and a social session. And they would all get their water for the day. So here is a Samaritan woman in noontime alone. The problem is probably found in verse 18. Jesus says to her, verse 18, You have had five husbands... And the one you now have is not your husband. Isn't that true? That is usually a problem in the most liberal society. But in first century Judaism and first century Israel, that was a big no-no. Even one divorce. But having gone through five husbands, she would be a social outcast. And so that's probably why she's going at noon alone because she was the topic of their gossip. And she's now with a man and he's not even her husband. She's just living with him. She has given up looking 
for a man to meet her needs, or at least for a husband to make promises. Men do that, you know. We are a flawed species. And I would, I would counsel the women. Now, I'm not a wife or a, the, the uh, offspring of a wife, but uh, or, or uh, forget that. Uh, <laughs> I, I am not a wife, but I can tell you that all husbands are flawed. Don't turn them into gods. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? All right. We are in agreement on one thing already. The wonderful verse that Jesus gives her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But for asking a gift like this. So my point here this morning is that the gospel of eternal life and the offer of eternal life is a totally unique message in the Bible. There's nothing like it in all the world. Not any religion has or presents a gospel like the gospel you find in the New Testament. And I want to give you several reasons for this. As seen in this, the story of this woman, uh, we see that the gospel is for anyone, no matter how many times they've failed or how disillusioned in life that they are or how outcast by society. The gospel comes and says if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given it. The gospel says, ask and you will receive the gift. It is for anyone. Here is Jesus initiating a conversation with an undeserved woman, undeserving woman, who is a Samaritan, not even a Jew, all by herself, Rejected by men and society, and Jesus offers the gospel to her. So the gospel is for anyone. Also, the gospel brings the greatest of gifts. Look at verse 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become in him a spring of water, a bubbling up, and it will well up into eternal life. He is offering her the greatest of gifts, which is eternal life. Now, you know, if sometimes if something is given to you free... It may be because it's just not worth anything. People give away things that aren't worth anything. But it also may be that it's so expensive you couldn't afford it, nor could anyone else. So if you're ever going to get it, it's got to be given to you. That could be a reason. If you ever see me with a brand new Mercedes... 
you're going to know it was given to me. It is beyond my reach. Eternal life, if you have eternal life, it has to be a gift because you couldn't afford it. It's amazing to me how that the greatest gift can be given to the worst of sinners, the most unworthy of sinners. It's, all, it's amazing and wonderful at the same time. It's for anyone, it's the greatest of gifts, and it comes without any cost to the recipient. It's a gift. I was looking at this and I thought, I'm not sure whether to entitle this sermon, Why I Believe the Gospel or Why I Love the Gospel. And I think both of those are true. But then drop down to verse 23 in John chapter 4. Let's go further. Or if you have your Bibles, look at verse 20. I think I've got a couple of these verses on on here. But John chapter 4 verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. And then look at verse 23. The hour is coming and now is, or is now here, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for that's what the Father is seeking, those kind of people to worship Him. Jesus is indicating a change in dispensations or covenants or age. Uh, She says, our fathers worshiped, but you say, verse 20, you Jews say Jerusalem is a place where you ought to worship. That's verse 20. Jesus says, verse 23, the hour is coming and it's actually here right now. When it's not any place that is holy, but your heart, your spirit reaching out to God. See, there is a change that the gospel brings into history itself, which is why I believe the gospel. Nothing is like this. Let me give you um, an example of a prediction. Zechariah 14.20. Can we pull that up? Zechariah 14 and verse 20. Look at this prediction, this prophecy of Zechariah. It's about the last one of, of the prophet Zechariah. He says, on that day, speaking of the day of the Messiah, there shall be inscribed on the bales of the horses, holiness to the Lord or holy to the Lord. Now, the thing about that is, if you read the Old Testament, you'll know that that is what was inscribed on the mitre or the headdress of the high priest going into the holy of holies. It was, it was given to the high priest. He's saying there's coming a day when the bridle of a horse is going to be on parity with the holiness of the high priest 
headdress. That'll be his name. That is stunning. That's stunning. Uh, Zechariah goes on to say, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord. Wait, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy, every single pot, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of a sacrifice in a common pot. In other words, the the woman working in the kitchen with a frying pan is as holy and can worship the same as the high priest as he brought the holy vessels into the Holy of Holies. Divine service is held by the housewife cooking meals in a kitchen. This is what is... This is what the, the, the Zechariah prophesied, is that there would come a day when every common thing was as holy as the holy of holies in the temple of God. And Jesus said, the time is coming and now is. The gospel has, in the death and resurrection of Christ, totally transformed world history into a new era in which God has blanketed the world with a vision of holiness that goes to all men, all places, all things, everywhere, all the time. Every common pot is an instrument of worship. There's no religion in the world, says this. They go backwards. They are archaic. For example, let me give you, there's, I brought a picture of a, in Judaism, there's the table of incense. And this is what was in the tabernacle right next to the veil going into the presence of God. Look at the pots and the pitchers and the cups. They used that in worship. And this table, there were tw- uh, uh, 12 loaves of bread on this table representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a place that it was symbolized you come and eat with God. That was holy vessels. You couldn't use that in your home. That now, he says, is everywhere. If you go to Bob Evans, your plate is holiness unto the Lord, written all over it. Or maybe you go somewhere different. I go where all the young people go, Bob Evans. Let me, let me give you another one. Pull up the picture of the Muslim bowl. Now this bowl, I got this off a Muslim website. You put water in this, in their structure of worship, mosque, and the mullah takes the water and cleanses the worshiper in his head, face, hands, elbows, and feet. They have to go through this in preparation for the prayers that they're going to do in the mosque. And if they really want to do it upright, they go to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. See, holy places, holy things, holy people. Let me tell you, 
Everything is holiness unto the Lord. And he is as much with you in your yard as he was in the outer court of the tabernacle. And you are a priest unto God as much as the sons of Aaron were in the Old Testament. You're called priest. What could possibly have made us priest? Let me flip over and read this real quick. This is in Revelation chapter 1. He says, Revelation 1 verse 5, To him who loves us and has loosed us or washed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God the Father. His blood made us that kind of worth. We, we, we as Christians need to get a greater grasp on what the blood has done for us as Christians. It didn't just forgive us. It did that. Hallelujah. But it elevated us and stationed us and gave us a status that only, is only found in the gospel and in the gospel age. Look down at verse 25. Let's go a little further. She says, The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The woman, because she had lived in Israel, uh, in the land, had heard of a, a coming deliverer. Psalm 110 predicted that God would take a man and anoint him and put him at his right hand. And people would be willing in the day of his power. Isaiah 9, 6 said that this Messiah, this deliverer that was coming, Isaiah said he will be an everlasting father, a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace and of the increase of his kingdom and his government, there would be no end to it. So these prophets, they knew there was some great deliverer coming. And so she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And verse 26 just knocks a home run. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What a powerful revelation of himself to this Samaritan woman. Do you know... The only time that he actually says something similar to this is in Matthew 16 where he told Peter, you know, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And Peter finally comes, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he said, oh, God has blessed you with that revelation. That's the closest you get to this. Jesus reveals all that he is in his person and work, what he embodies of God in the promises of the Old Testament, and he reveals it to this little lady, five times married, five times divorced, now living with a guy, and he just initiates and unveils all that he is to her. You found him because I'm him.
You need to stop drinking of the water that never satisfies and drink of the water that I can give to you. Some have said, I have heard this, that it's the early church that said Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus himself never claimed to be the Messiah. But verse 26 puts that statement to shame because he said, I who speak to you am he. Jesus said he was the Messiah of Israel. We live in a day since the gospel age. And why I believe the gospel is because it has transformed society. Every kitchen is a holy place. Every Christian is a priest unto God. Every piece of property is holy land. You cannot go somewhere that the land is more holy than where you are sitting this morning. Or when you get in your car, that is holy land. Jesus said, I have come and the change and the age and the covenant has transformed every molecule in the entire universe so that the, you no longer have to go to Jerusalem. The time now is when you worship in spirit and truth. So let's sum this up for you. Five quick things. And we'll just run through these one after another. First, I believe the gospel, love the gospel, because it's for anyone, no matter where they are in the journey of life, how many failures they've had, how many times they've looked at themselves in the mirror and said, I did it again, can't believe it. I'm so disgusted with myself. You know, Jesus' greatest revelation was to this woman. Jesus was not disgusted at this woman. Number two, I believe the gospel and love the gospel because it's for the greatest of sinners and gives the greatest of gifts, eternal life for the asking. Number three, it comes without any cost to the recipient. He said, if you knew the gift of God, Doria, it's a gift, free gift. And number four, I love the gospel, believe the gospel because it fulfills Old Testament prophecies and turns the covenant upside down, changes the dispensation, the covenant, the age in which we live like nothing else. You don't find this in any other religion. Every religion has religious bowls, religious places, religious items, religious people. The gospel comes and with sweeping hand pronounces all belonging to God. And then finally, number five, I believe the gospel and love it because it brings an assurance that you cannot have in any other religion. Look at verse 40. Chapter 4, verse 40. When the Samaritans came to him, because she went out and got them, so they came and they... They asked him to stay, and he stayed two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and know this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
people knew there was a Savior of the world. It doesn't say they just believed, but they believed and they know. The gospel unique to the Christian faith brings an assurance that is not available, not taught in any religion. And if you, if you find one, let me know, because I know what the Muslims believe. If the five pillars of Muslim, of Islam, if you go through the five pillars, they don't say, okay, now you have eternal life. We promise you. They don't do that. They don't give assurance. If you turn to Judaism and you say, uh, if you find you a rabbi who's willing to sit down with you for a little bit, which is hard to find, but you find one and they'll talk with you and you say, what must I do to be saved? They cannot give you a straight answer. And if you do something in Judaism, and I talked to a rabbi or the secretary of a rabbi, and I said, uh, how do I convert to Judaism? And they say, well, you have to take a class. And I said, well, when is the class? She said, well, I don't know. We haven't had one in five years. And I thought, well, what if I was a little bit more in a hurry than that? But when you come to the Christ of the Gospels, he said, it's yours for the asking. It's eternal life. And those who believe it and receive it, they not only believe, they know they have the Savior of the world. They know it. And I like the way they put Savior of the world. An absolutely publicized, well-known fact. The Bible presents and prophesies a Messiah. The New Testament presents a Messiah and says he has come. Believe in him. It is the Savior. Even the Samaritans knew he's the Savior of the world. Stuart Hamlin was a hard-drinking, gambling, and country singer back in the 40s, 1940s, in Hollywood. He got tired of the life that he was living. He would be arrested for drunk driving. He was in and out of jail so many times. But he was a great singer and his handlers would bail him out. Getting tired of this life, he went to a Billy Graham crusade in the late 40s. It was held in Los Angeles. And there he put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, and was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he knew a lot of Hollywood people. One of them was John Wayne. And John Wayne saw the incredible transformation of this man. And he said to him, he said, Stuart, what's the secret? What's your secret? And Stuart Hamlin said, well, it's no secret what God can do. And John Wayne said, well, Pilgrim, <laughs> no. He said, you ought to write a song it's no secret what God can do. You ought to write a song about that. And so he did. It is no secret 
what God can do, what He's done for others, He'll do for you. With arms wide open, He'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. He's the Savior of the world. Amen. That's why I believe the gospel, and that's why I love the gospel. Those five things. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you today for the gospel that's so free, so pure, so sweet, so good. Thank you that it comes to the worst of us, those whom men and churches and Christians would not accept, but you accept through Christ. I pray today you will let that living water bubble up in each of our hearts. Oh, give us this eternal life through the Messiah, Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.